I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, we'll also look at uh, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, just a couple of scriptures real quickly if, uh, if you want to get a head start and, and uh, be prepared for that as well. We're going through the Gospel of John, and uh, we've made it to the third chapter. It's only taken us about six weeks, I think, but whatever. Anyway, we've, uh, we're going to go through the third chapter this evening. And um, let me remind you of some things that, uh, that we've spoken about before. The Gospel of John is the last of the, um, the Gospels to be written, certainly. And um, it's one of the last two books of the New Testament to be written. We're not exactly sure if the book of Revelation was written before or just after the gospel that bears John's name. He wrote, he authored both of them, and they were both written about the same time, and that is about 93 or 94 A.D. Now, what that means is John is writing his gospel about um, 63 or 64 years after he first met Jesus, and he's writing this gospel 60 to 61 years after Jesus was crucified. So John is well aware of all the other books that are written. He's uh, uh, certainly aware that uh, the other three gospels are out there. They're very well read. They're very well circulated. And um, so, so he knows what other people have said. And so for that reason, John gives us a little bit uh, um, of a different point of view. The things that he writes that the other gospel writers or one of the other gospel writers or several perhaps have already recounted, he gives us either some new information on it or in some cases he gives the second confirmation because the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. So in in some cases one of the gospel writers uh, records uh, one event taking place and then John confirms it. And um, for that reason, because the other gospels are out there, and they they come at Jesus' life and his ministry from different points of view than, than he does. For that reason, John, less than any of the other gospel writers, tries to, um, uh, to keep things in a chronological order. Matthew is probably the best as far as the chronology of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry was concerned, but John's not really concerned about that. He starts off with some things in the first couple of chapters to tell us about the beginning point of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 3 is going to continue with that. But beyond that, John kind of skips around different things, trying to make sure that he hits the important points. Now, up to this point in time uh, and through chapter 3, um, John is is emphasizing certain key elements, and one of those key elements, the theme of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's a different uh, theme, it's a different point of view than any of the other Gospel writers were inspired by the Holy Ghost to take. But uh, in uh, the first couple, well, the second and the third, in some of the fourth chapter of, uh, of John's Gospel, he identifies as one of the main points, main emphasis, uh, witnessing. The witness of Jesus, people coming to Jesus. And in the second chapter, we looked at how he uh, found his disciples and made them disciples in different ways. John and Andrew became disciples or followers of Jesus because of John the Baptist's testimony. It tells us Nathaniel became one of the followers of Jesus because uh, of a gift of the Spirit, a word of knowledge in operation where Jesus said, I saw you sitting under a fig tree. Uh, we'll see that same thing in operation in uh, chapter 4 with the woman at the well. But uh, but there are different different ways that uh, John identifies that Jesus reached his disciples, and and there's a reason for that. Peter, for example, it speaks of Peter how that apparently Jesus reached Peter with talking to the thing that was the most, um, well, the the heaviest on his heart, the the secret of his heart, and that was his in, the instability of his life, because he talks about making him stable. He talks about making him a solid individual, 
And for that reason, it's important for us to realize that the Holy Ghost reaches people in different ways. God reached you in a different way than he reached me. Not that we got saved in different ways, but different things about the way that God appealed to us was different between us and, and you and me and others as well. So that's good for us to keep in mind in that the Holy Ghost will give you the words to say that are important for somebody rather than trying to memorize some pattern or ritual or program to get people saved. Nothing wrong with the programs, but it kind of shuts the Holy Ghost out from reaching the heart of the individual. And that's what John emphasizes. Now, th- there's something else about this that John is, uh, is, has emphasized up until chapter 3, and we'll continue, but it kind of sets the stage. And that is, uh, in chapter 2, we looked at Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And notice in verse 11, it says, This beginning of miracles, the first miracle Jesus did, in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I thought disciples already believed. He said his disciples believed on him. In other words, the ones that he's already reached, that he's identified in the first chapter, along with whoever else has been following him up to this point, they really believed. They, they accepted the testimony. John and Andrew, for example, accepted the testimony of John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. But now after seeing the miracles, they're really in. They're all in now. And then it says in the, at the end of chapter 2, Verse 23, now when he, Jesus, was at Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. When they saw the miracles, which he did. Folks, you need to realize something. The power of God is not here for us to tickle ourselves with. The power of God is given to the church to help the world believe. Let me uh, let me read something to you that John wrote. Or, I'm sorry, not John. Uh, oh, what's that guy's name? Paul. Yeah. I get to talking about John, forget that it was anybody else. Romans chapter four, uh, chapter 15, there's, uh, there's some scripture here that's, uh, that's always caught my attention. Verses 18 and 19, Romans 15, verse 18 and 19, Paul said, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not wrought or done by me. In other words, I'm not going to give you a testimony of what somebody else has done. The only thing I'm going to tell you about are the things that I know because God has used me in. And he goes further. For to tell us the purpose for that, the last phrase of chapter, uh, of verse 18, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Now the word obedient there means to make them believers. In other words, he's saying Jesus did signs and wonders. The things that Jesus did were one for, for one and the one purpose only, and that was to cause people to believe. He goes on in verse 19 and tells us what things God has done through him. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout into to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying we haven't fully preached the gospel unless we've done what we preached about. He's saying there ought to be signs following so that the world can see. In other words, he's saying fully preaching the gospel of Jesus is not trying to convince anybody. There may be convincing, there may be persuasion in our preaching and or our teaching, but we ought to back it up with what we do. And that's what Paul said he did. Amen? Now, in uh, back to John chapter 3, we'll read the last couple of verses of uh, the second chapter again. Verse 23, Now when he was at Jerusalem as the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. I'm going to read to you the last couple of verses in Matthew chapter 4, 
because uh, Matthew is telling us about the early days of Jesus' ministry, which John is as well. But it'll give you a little bit better understanding of, of the conditions and the circumstances of, of uh, Jesus' ministry when John picks up the story in chapter 3. In verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So he preached, he taught, and he healed. And his fame went throughout all Syria. Now, folks, please notice this. Jesus' fame was not limited to Israel. It was not limited to Jerusalem. It was not limited to Israel. It was not limited to Judea. It was not even limited to what we know of as the West Bank, the Palestinian nations now, or the Palestinian areas, territories. It says, all his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people. From where? From Syria. Maybe from other places as well, it'll tell us that, but we know it includes Syria. So there's enough fame of Jesus that's being told that people are making long, long distance travels with sick people to get to him. And folks, if you look at when this happened, this is right after Jesus starts his ministry. Chapter 4 is about Jesus going into the wilderness. He was out there for 40 days and afterward he was tempted of the devil. And he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And then it tells us that his fame went out throughout all the regions round about into Syria. And they brought into him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Well, he healed who? He healed all of them. The first year of Jesus' ministry is called by in theological circles the year of popularity. Because Jesus did some, some terrific miracles up front to get everybody to believe in him. And notice it says in verse 25, And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee. We, well, we know the sick people are coming from Syria, as well as other quarters. Now it says the great numbers or great multitudes of people from, came from Galilee to follow him. And from Decapolis, Decapolis means ten cities. Those are the Greek cities. Jesus really didn't have much to do in Decapolis or with the cities of Decapolis or the region around about. He wouldn't do much healing or, or ministry there in the first half of um of his ministry, the first couple of years of his ministry, because that, he was uh, sent exclusively to the Jews, and that's how he started off. So he didn't have much to do with the people in Decapolis, but they still heard and they came. And from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Now, beyond Jordan is what we know of as the Arab territories. We get this idea that Jesus walked through town and there were 50 people that followed him. But where it says great multitudes came from these places... It's really hard for us to identify how many people were following Jesus. Although we do know this. We do know that he fed 5,000 in one place. He fed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. Now, if uh, gatherings were anything back then like they are today, you're going to have twice or three times as many women and children than you have men, at least in most churches. So this could be a crowd of 10,000. It could be a crowd of 15,000. It could be a crowd of 20,000. We just know that they've counted the men. 5,000 men were there, plus the women and the children. The Bible calls that a great multitude. This says great multitudes. You need to realize, folks, that early on, Jesus had tens of thousands of people following him at any given time. Now, you couldn't have everybody come and stay. They would come and go, certainly. But at any given time, Jesus could have upwards of 10, maybe 20, maybe 30,000 people trying to follow him and get to where he's going. That's why Jesus spent a lot of his time out in the open. Where are you going to take ten or 20,000 people in a city? 
It's not like he's renting out stadiums or amphitheaters. So he goes to open areas. That's one of the reasons that Jesus stayed in Judea out in the open. So that's the situation that we pick up the story in John chapter 3. Let's go back there. After, As John describes it, he just kind of gives it a benign once-over in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. Well, these are the people that are coming from all different quarters. Tens of thousands of people are following Jesus. And so that brings us to the, the, the that sets the stage for chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That means he's a rabbi. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now I'm going to stop there and, and, uh, and, and take this apart a little bit because there's something that we need to recognize about this. It says Nicodemus did several things. First of all, he's not speaking for himself. He said, we know. Well, who's we, Nicodemus? Well, we've already seen that in John the Baptist ministry, there were Pharisees and Sadducees that came to him, and he called for them to bring forth fruits, meat, or appropriate for repentance. In other words, change your life. Don't just come here and get baptized with everybody else. We see that all kinds of folks were following John the Baptist. The Roman soldiers were asking John the Baptist what to do. The common people were doing that as well. There were all kinds of crowds that were following John the Baptist and a lot of the Pharisees. Well, John the Baptist is the one that looks at Jesus and says, this is the Messiah. He's the one that I'm forerunning for. He's the one that I'm announcing, setting the stage, preparing the way for. This is the Messiah. And a lot of people began to follow Jesus from John's ministry. The last part of chapter 3 tells us about that and gives us some more information. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, literally where it says the ruler of the Jews, it probably means he was part of the Sanhedrin, the same group that sentenced Jesus to death. So when it says he was a ruler of the Jews, notice a couple of things. He's not speaking for himself. He's speaking for somebody else. So more than likely, Nicodemus has been sent as a representative of the Sanhedrin or maybe the Pharisees. And his purpose is to try to incorporate Jesus and his success to make him one of them. Because that's the first thing Nicodemus says. He says, you're one of us. He calls Jesus by their names. He says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles except God be with him. They can ask you a question. If they really believe that Jesus was a teacher come from God, why is he going to argue with him about what he says? If you're convinced that a teacher has come from God, aren't you going to listen to what they say? Well, they haven't done that yet. There's not a lot of sincerity here. He's on a mission. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. How do we know? Because no man can do the miracles that you do, that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, there's uh, this translation is, uh, is a little bit unclear. Because where it says no man can do these miracles, it does not mean a one-time thing. Because all throughout Jewish history, there were prophets that did miracles in spot situations, certain events and certain things, but not with great regularity. Even the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, which were storied, happened over periods of time rather than one thing right after another. What they're saying to Jesus is, we know that no man, you're a teacher come from God because no man can keep doing these miracles that you're doing unless God's with him. See, they're drawn by the miracles. They know the crowds are following Jesus because of the miracles. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to make Jesus one of them. 
That's why the third, the, the second chapter ends with Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them. John is telling us the story about how the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, tried to make Jesus one of them so that they could share in his popularity. So he said, after coming by night, now if he's, think about that. If he's coming on behalf of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees, those are almost interchangeable terms, but there were some others that made up the Sanhedrin. So the fact that he says ruler of the Jews probably means the Sanhedrin. We could be wrong about that, but just for the sake of, uh, of understanding, that's what I mean when I say ruler. We'll just call him the Sanhedrin. So let's say that Nicodemus has been sent by a, a group of the Sanhedrin, and they have sent him for a specific purpose, and that is to get Jesus on their side. And notice it says that they came by night. Why did he come by night? If the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin sent him, he's not trying to keep them from knowing. Why did he come by night? Because he doesn't want the people to know. He doesn't want the people to know that there's a backroom deal going. And so he comes by night. You know what's interesting about this? Every place that uh, Nicodemus is referred to, there's two other times in the Gospel of John. The only two other places where Nicodemus is referred to are in John's Gospel. In both cases, chapter 7, verse 50, and chapter 19, verse 39, I think it is. In both places, it speaks of Nicodemus as being the one that came to him by night. Nicodemus is curious, but he's trying to pull a shady deal here on behalf of the Sanhedrin. So he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher. Come from God, for no man can do or continue to do these miracles that thou doest except... God be with him. Now, what's he interested in? He's interested in the miracles. He's interested in the benefit of having Jesus, the miracle worker, as being part of his group. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things, I won't take a long time to go through this, but there, Jesus answers, um, well, remember what I said before about the, the second chapter of John? Uh, the end of the first chapter and the second chapter of John being examples of how Jesus reached people in different ways. Nicodemus is not sincerely coming to Jesus. Now, he may be on the fence. He may be on the fence about whether or not Jesus really is the one that John the Baptist said that he is or, or what should be done or whatever. But obviously, he's on a mission sent by somebody else. He's not talking about himself. He never says anything about me or I or what I believe or what I see in your ministry. He always speaks as a representative of, of, uh, of someone else, and we have to conclude that's the Sanhedrin. And notice what he says. Jesus will use his words in, in verse 2 and in verse... Uh, what is it? Verse 2 and verse 4 and verse 9. He will use Nicodemus's own words to turn around to show him who he, Jesus, is. One thing that Jesus must see about Nicodemus is that he is open. I don't know that we could say that he's, uh, that he's just curious. I think it would have to go beyond that because a lot of people are curious about miracles. But that doesn't mean they're open. A lot of times in Jesus' ministry, people came just for the miracles and Jesus wouldn't do anything for them. He says, you're not here because of the miracles that have opened your heart. You're here because you just want to see a show. So if that was the case for Nicodemus, he's not going to be interested anymore in that at this point in time than he is later on in his ministry. But he's going to use his words. He's going to use Nicodemus' own words. And Nicodemus first says, no man can continue to do these miracles except God be with him. And Jesus turns it around and says, except a man. 
be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, how can this be? Or how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus answered and said unto him, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter. How can he enter? He cannot enter unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. He can't enter the kingdom of God. Then Jesus goes further and says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel ye not that I said unto you, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell where it comes from and whether it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Now, Jesus obviously sees something, an openness about Nicodemus because he tries to get him to understand. Now, remember who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a rabbi. That means Nicodemus has been trained in the, the, the best of the theological schools, the, the greatest schools there are of Judaism. He's um, uh, privy to schooling and education all of his life. He's considered to be one of the ones now that tells the people of Israel about the things of God. And Jesus talks to him about the things of God that he does not know. And so as Nicodemus comes and says, we want to know about these miracles. We believe you're a teacher come from God. We don't believe what you say, but we believe you're a teacher come from God. And what's convinced us is that you keep doing these miracles. Well, how should Jesus respond to that? He could cut him off right there at the knees. He could say, well, if I'm a teacher come from God, why don't you believe what I say? Are you here to be one of my disciples since I'm a teacher come from God? There's all kinds of ways Jesus could respond. But Jesus talks to him about the one thing that matters. Now, why does he talk to him about being born again? Certainly being born again is the most important thing. But it almost seems like he's ignoring his, his question. He's ignoring his statement in verse 2 and getting to something else that's off the subject. But he's not. Because what he is saying is, you, Nicodemus, as a teacher, as an instructor of the Jews, as a rabbi, one that others look to as the leader of God's people, you don't know what's important. It's not the miracles that are important. It's being born again. It's what the miracles will cause you to accept as truth that's important. So he says, except a man be born uh, born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can this be? He's thinking naturally, as all religious people do. How can this be? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is trying to explain to him, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the Jews, a rabbi himself, he's trying to explain to them that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth. He's saying, except you be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, Jesus is talking about a supernatural birth. He's not talking about a natural birth. So whereas we could make a case that he's saying being born into the earth by water, like a a mother's water breaks, and be born of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is only for men anyway. So you've already done that. So the water and the Spirit that he's talking about have to be supernatural. Now, what does this mean? Well, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 says, We're born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. So the water is a type of the Word. The Spirit is a type of the generation, the regeneration that takes, takes place when we accept the Word of God about Jesus being raised from the dead. In their case, he wasn't yet gone to the cross, so they accepted 
the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And then when he went to the cross, the regeneration of that new birth could take place, as it did in John chapter 20 for the disciples. So here where he's talking about what he's referring to has to be, except a man is born of the word and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what does Nicodemus know about either one of those? Nicodemus, who has received the, the, the rabbinical training, which a part of being a rabbi is you had to have knowledge of the Old Testament to such a degree that you could quote it. I mean, they know this stuff by memory. They don't have to get the scrolls. They do. They use the scrolls and, and so forth. But they know this stuff by memory. Shouldn't he know Ezekiel 36? Do you know Ezekiel 36? Let me turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and see what Ezekiel said by the Spirit of God. That which they already know, that which that uh, Nicodemus has learned and could probably recite by heart. Verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. That's the work of the word. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and you shall do them. Shouldn't he know this? Jesus is going to make that point when he asks later on, and you're a teacher of the, of the Jews? You're a master? You're a teacher of the Jews and you don't know this stuff? So he says again in verse 5, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you. That's the second time Jesus has said it. He said it first in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 5, he says it again. He said, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now he's answering his objection. Can a man be born the second time from his mother's womb? He said, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's telling him, I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. Shouldn't that trigger Ezekiel 36 as well as some other Old Testament scriptures for Isaiah, for uh, Nicodemus? Shouldn't he know? Shouldn't he have some kind of understanding about these things? The point is, even as a rabbi and as a teacher of the Jews, he's just as dumb as an ox. And by that, I don't mean unintelligent. He's one of the greatest intellectuals of his day. By that, I mean he is spiritually dull. And that's the whole point that Jesus is trying to make to him. He's trying to show him. You may think that you're a leader. You may think me being part of you is the thing to do because that's what the Sanhedrin told you. But it really should be the other way around. You need to be part of me. Marvel ye not that I said unto you, you must be born again. Why would he say this? Nicodemus is probably standing there with his mouth hanging open. Marvel not that I said unto you that you should be born again. Don't be surprised by this. He must have seen surprise on his face. The wind blows where it listeth, and you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What's he talking about? He's saying that the new birth, being born of the Spirit, this being born of water, the Word, and the Spirit, the new birth, this being born again spiritually and supernaturally is something you can't see. You're trying to figure it out, and you're trying to see it. You're trying to accept things based on the miracles that you've seen. The miracles aren't supposed to convince you of being born again. It's supposed to convince you that I am sent from God, just like you said that I am. But the key is to be born again. Nicodemus answers again, shows that he's on board, 
and says in verse 9, how can these things be? And then Jesus answers and said unto him, art thou a master? This word master is the same word rabbi. Same word used for teacher in verse 2. You've called me a teacher come from God. Are you a teacher of Israel and knowest not these things? That was one of his questions. How can these things be? Don't you know these things? You should. That's why God gave him the Old Testament, why he gave him the word. Verily, verily, third time, truly, truly, I say unto you, we speak of that which we do know and testify that which we have seen and you receive not our witness. Now, back in verse 2, he said, we know. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and said, we know that you're a teacher come from God because nobody can keep doing these miracles except God be with him. Now, Jesus is saying, truly, truly, he's using his own words. Truly, truly, we speak the things that we know. And testify of that which we've seen. But you don't receive our witness. Now, why won't he receive the witness? Folks, you need to understand how the, how the, the spiritual progression works. And that is simply this. You accept the truth or receive what the Bible says, and then knowledge comes. And that's exactly opposite from what most people are trying to make work. They want to have the knowledge, and then maybe they'll believe. And it never works that way. You don't ever figure out the Bible first and then accept it. You accept it because it's God's word, and then the knowledge comes. That's the way it's always going to work. It goes even further than that. You believe first, and then the understanding comes. You try to figure God out, you're going to be hopelessly lost. And that's exactly where the Jews are. That's exactly where Nicodemus is. That's exactly where the Sanhedrin is. That's exactly where the other rabbis are. That's exactly where the spiritual leaders of Israel are at. They're trying to know things before they accept them. Why? Because they are so smart. It never works. Never works that way. You receive it first, then the knowledge comes. You believe it first, then the understanding comes. So he said, you receive not our witness. You call me a teacher, come from God, but you won't accept what I'm saying. How does that make sense on any level? We know that you're a teacher, come from God. The miracles have proved it to us. The fact that you keep doing miracles, man, that proves it to us. You are a teacher, come from God. Why didn't Jesus say, then why don't you believe me? He does say that later on about John the Baptist. He asked the same Pharisees, the same group, come to them, come to Jesus, and they want to know whose authority are you operating in? Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus says, well, I'll, before I answer your question, I'll ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it of man or of, of God? They huddle up together. All the smart people get together. They say, okay, how are we going to answer this? If we say it was of God, then he's going to say, why didn't we believe on it? If we say it was of man, people will get upset with us because they really like John. So they come out, as all smart people do, religious people say, we don't know. Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. Why didn't he ask him here? They knew that about John. If he was from God, the question is, why didn't you believe what John said? If Jesus is the teacher come from God, why aren't they believing what he said? Verily, verily, verse 11 again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we do know and testify that which we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, folks, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've explained spiritual things to you by using the earthly example of the wind. You can't see it. You can't see where it's coming from. All you can see is the effect of it. You can see the wind blowing through the trees, but what you see is the movement of the leaves. 
You don't see the wind. Nobody sees the wind. Even if the wind is blowing dust, all you see is the dust, not the wind. That's what he's saying. If I've explained these things to you in earthly ways, how are you going to believe if I tell you of spiritual things? Or heavenly things. And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that which came, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now at this point everything shifts. Because Jesus apparently sees something in Nicodemus. He sees an opening. He sees an open heart in Nicodemus. Because he has every opportunity to shut him down. He has every opportunity to look at him like he did some of the Pharisees later on in his ministry and said, you're of your father the devil. He called them white as sepulchers. He called them snakes. He called, said they were their father the devil. He called them all kinds of different things. Probably the worst thing he ever called them was hypocrites. Because a hypocrite to the Pharisees, ooh, that was a big deal. That's what they called everybody else. So when Jesus used their own term against them, that was huge. He's got every opportunity to use any of those terms where Nicodemus is concerned. Why doesn't he? He's trying to convince him. Now he's going to get to the point where he says something that's going to turn everything around. He's been talking to him about being born again. He's been talking to him about spiritual things. He's been trying to tell him as a master of Israel, as a teacher of Israel, you should know these things. This is the Old Testament. I'm singing your song now. I'm not talking to you about things you don't know. I'm going back to the things that you should know. And notice what he says, no man has ascended up to heaven but the Son of Man which came down. It's an interesting thing because the uh, the Bible is is so incredibly accurate. Even though I'm sure that John didn't uh, didn't plan all this stuff out, I don't think you could have all these plans out, all these things planned out. But of all the things that it says about people that, uh, uh, for example, in Hebrews it says Enoch was translated to heaven. It tells that uh, uh, Elijah was caught up into the whirlwind. It tells us that the church will be caught up into heaven to meet Jesus in the air. The only one person that Scripture ever says ascended into heaven is Jesus. Meaning Jesus can go up just like Jesus can come down. So it says only no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now, the last phrase is what kicks everything in gear. He says, the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Okay, Jesus, wait a minute. I'm talking to you. You're right here. How can you be in heaven? He's saying, God and I are one. He's saying, I'm in heaven because I am one with the Father. Now, folks, we could talk about a lot of things. Remember, John's whole point is that Jesus is the Son of God. The thing he's emphasizing right now is how Jesus reached Nicodemus, who was one of the Sanhedrin. And he got him. When he says, the Son of Man which is in heaven, everything Jesus has said, everything that Nicodemus doesn't understand, but that Jesus identifies that I'm speaking to you about spiritual things or heavenly things, he's saying, the Son of Man came down, me, I came down from heaven And I'm still there. I've still got a position there. Now, in the same way, the Bible says you have been seated in heavenly places in Christ. So just as you are here because you're one with Christ and he's there, you're in heaven too. What he's talking about, in one sense, is a type of what we have, a place or a position in heaven. But for him, it's more. He's saying, I am the great I am. I am one with God the Father. Then what does he do? He kicks into Old Testament. 
He starts speaking things that Nicodemus will know. He said, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what does Nicodemus know? Nicodemus knows the story. The story is Numbers chapter 21. It tells us about how, the, how they were in the wilderness, and the children of Israel began to murmur against the God, against Moses and against God. And it says, fiery serpents came into the, to the camp. King James says the Lord sent them, but that's not accurate as far as the translation is concerned. The Bible tells us that they were in the, these fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, were in the wilderness for the 40 years they were out there. The only time they ever came into the camp was when Israel rebelled against God. And then Israel turns around and says to Moses, we know that we messed up. Not we know that God's done something to us, we know that we messed up. And so it says in Numbers chapter 21, and the Lord said, verse 8, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that, that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, it shall live. He, he shall live, the person shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, why is Jesus talking about Moses? Is he just saying, well, there's going to come a time where I'm going to be lifted up and hang on the cross? Well, he is saying that, but it means something more to Nicodemus, and it means something more in what Jesus is telling us. Because here's the deal. The serpent of brass was commanded by God was commanded Moses by God to put up on a pole. Why? Why a serpent of brass? Why not just take one of those uh, snakes, poisonous snakes and spear it, spike it, and put it up on a pole for everybody to see? Because this is a type of sin. It's a type of the darkness that's come on the world. It's a type of the, the, the poison that has corrupted the whole world. Now, these poisonous snakes, when somebody was bitten by these things, that poison would go throughout their whole system. It would corrupt their whole system. It wasn't a matter of, oh, I got bitten on the finger. I just need to stop the, the right here on my finger. If I can just get a salve or something like that on my finger, then I'll be all right. That poison goes through the whole body. It corrupts the whole body. In the same way, sin corrupted the whole earth. So if this, the type of Jesus is just one of the snakes stuck up on the pole, that's not going to work because that's not going to be representative of everybody. But the brass serpent is something that represents, and throughout the Old Old Testament, brass represents the judgment of God. The brazen altar, the brass altar, was where the sacrifices were made. That's where the judgment of God would fall, the fire of God would fall upon the sacrifice. Brass represents judgment. So the brass serpent represents Jesus being made sin on the cross. Now, what's the, what's the, the fix, the cure for the people that are bitten? God told Moses... That anybody that is bitten, if they'll look at the pole, look at the serpent on the pole, the serpent of brass on the pole, they shall live and not die. Now think about what that means. First of all, he didn't say, look at Moses. He didn't say, look at your wounds. He didn't say, look at your life. He didn't say, look at whether or not you've been a good person or a bad person. He didn't say, look at any of that other kind of stuff. He said, look upon the pole. The serpent on the pole, which is a type of Jesus being made sin on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was made sin for us. He was not hanging on the cross as a man. He was hanging on the cross as one sinless man upon whom the judgment of God fell. And the cure was to simply look away from everything else and look at the serpent on the pole. So when Jesus starts speaking to Nicodemus saying, I am God, he's saying, I'm the serpent on the pole. I'm the one, just like Moses lifted up the serpent of brass. They understood. Nicodemus understood. The serpent of brass was all about the judgment. It's about judgment. He's looking at Jesus as doing miracles here on the earth. Jesus is trying to look, get 
Nicodemus, a teacher, a leader, spiritual leader of the Jews, to recognize the whole thing is about sacrifice. The whole thing is about being born again because I become the sacrifice. So he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must also the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, you're going to have to change everything about your life. Everything about your life has been listening to the Sanhedrin's rules, and none of there's not an answer there. You're going to have to be just like the people in the wilderness and look away to me. Now, what's interesting about that to me is no matter how deep somebody is in sin, it just takes looking at Jesus on the cross. Just as in Numbers chapter 21, no matter how critical they were, whether they were bitten on their toe and it hadn't, hadn't really affected them yet to a great degree, or they were at the point of death, all they had to do is look at the serpent on the pole. You know, the, the, of all the muscles in the body, you know the easiest one to move? Scientifically, this is medical science. Medically, medical science has identified that the easiest muscle in all the muscles of the body to move is the eyelid. No matter how weak, no matter how far gone somebody is, you can move your eyelid. In other words, you can look. And that's what God commanded Moses. Whosoever looketh shall live. Verse 15, that, or so that, whosoever believeth in him, the Son of Man who's lifted up, should not perish but have eternal life. We know these scriptures and they're sweet and they're precious and and we've grown up with them in Sunday school and, and so forth. But I think to a great degree, we've missed out on what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's two options, no middle ground, perishing or eternal life. There's not a place for a good moral person there. There's not a place for somebody that's done good work throughout their lives and count on that. There's two extremes, perishing or eternal life. That's all there is, folks. And if somebody's not in the eternal life camp, by default, they're in the perishing camp. And that's what Jesus is saying. Where do you think Nicodemus identifies himself to be? Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's showing him how. He's showing the method to escape the darkness that he's going to describe that Nicodemus and all of Israel is in. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Nicodemus is being told these things, not because Jesus knows these will make great scriptures for Sunday school, but because he's giving Nicodemus the opportunity to identify himself and make his own choice. You may have come here on behalf of the Sanhedrin, but now it's between you and me. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Which one are you, Nicodemus? He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus right up front, this is who I am. I am the Son of God. And this is the condemnation, verse 19, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, folks, this is the real slap in the face, and that is this. People that reject Jesus, reject it because they love darkness. So where Jesus is challenging Nicodemus, he's saying, which one are you? Do you love darkness too? 
He knows what's in the heart of men. Remember what we just read in the last verse of chapter 2. Verse 24 and 25, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knows what's in the Sanhedrin. He knows who, what the, what's in the committee and what the motive of the committee is, the Nicodemus. But now the question is, what about you, Nicodemus? I know your partner's over there. They love darkness. They're going to stay in the darkness because they like it that way. What about you? This is the condemnation, verse 19 again, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. I wonder if Nicodemus is thinking about the rest of the the committee. Because there might be some in the committee that, that are taking the position that, well, let's wait and see what this guy does. I mean, maybe he is the one. But there are others on the committee, others of the Sanhedrin, the high priest being one of them, that winds up saying, we got to kill this guy. Yeah, but, but what if he's the son of God? Doesn't matter. He's going to take our place. He's going to create such a situation that the Romans are going to come and take away our place. we got to kill him. You think Nicodemus isn't thinking about some of that? You think he's not thinking about some of the things he's heard from the people that he's a part of? That he's trying to get Jesus to come be a part of? Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved or exposed. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that are wrought in God. Now, the two times from this point on, there are two times, as I mentioned, that Nicodemus is referred to. Chapter 7 and verse 50, or around verse 50, tells us about how that when uh, um, the, the Sanhedrin sends another committee out to bring Jesus to them. And the committee comes back and the, the council says, well, where is he? Why would you come back without him? And they answer and they said, nobody ever spake like this guy. We've never heard anybody say things like this guy. And they ask, are you taken in too? Are you taken in by him too? And then Nicodemus speaks up to the council. And it says Nicodemus, the one who first came to Jesus by night. Now he's out in the open. There's been a change in him somehow. He stands up to the council and he says, does not our law provide for a man to not be judged before he's heard? Are you willing to break our own law to carry out your plans? And then they turn on Nicodemus. They said, are you taken in by this guy too? The second time it refers to him is John chapter 19 after Jesus is uh, crucified and he dies on the cross. Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea to beg for the body of Jesus to put him in the tomb. So somewhere after this point in time, we don't know when because it ends with Jesus talking to him. But somewhere after this point in time, Nicodemus comes out in the open. And where he first comes to Jesus by night, by cover of darkness, he winds up being out in the open. Where where others have turned away, especially at the cross. And he's right there. Jesus sees something in this guy and he reaches him through it. Now, let's start uh, with verse 22. We'll cover this real quickly. As a matter of fact, let me just read down through verse 36, and then we'll make some comments. After these things came Jesus and his disciples unto the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. Okay, i gotta got to skip over to chapter 4. Because where it says Jesus baptized, it's gotta, you have to understand this. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now remember we read about the multitudes coming to John. Tens of thousands of people are being baptized in Jesus' ministry now. Verse 2 it says, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. So people are being baptized but Jesus is not doing the baptizing. 
He's overseeing it. He's commissioned his disciples to do it. So that's what's being spoken of here in chapter 3, verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon, I guess is how you say it, near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Now remember before Jesus came to John, he's out in the wilderness. And it represents death. It represents the spiritual death that he's calling out to the people, prepare for the way of the Lord or prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now, after he finds Jesus, he's in a place that's known as peace, a place of many waters and a place that's called peace. And so it says that John was not yet cast into prison. And there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, they meaning both John's disciples and the Jews, and said unto him, Rabbi, doing the same thing to John, trying to butter him up just like they did Jesus. Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. Now, what's happening is very simple. I know I said I'd read it and stop to make comments, but or make comments after, but anyway, I, I, I can't. I, just, I tried. I just couldn't. What's happening here is that the Jews are now looking at John, who have been a thorn in, his, in their side. John the Baptist has been a thorn in their side from for years. And now Jesus has got greater crowds than John the Baptist. And so what do they do? They come try to rub John's nose in it. They come to his disciples and said, whoa, what happened to your crowds? Oh, there they are. They're following that Jesus guy. Well, John the Baptist's disciples naturally take offense at that. I probably would too. And so they go to John with it. So they all go as a group and they say, what do you think about this? Look at Jesus. He's got the crowds now. Everybody's coming to him. In other words, he's got everybody that you had plus some. Well, these are the great multitudes, the tens of thousands of people that are following Jesus wherever they can find out that he is somewhere. And John answers and says in verse 27, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. In other words, he's saying, this is proof that God's upon him. This is proof that the Holy Ghost descended on him and stayed. You can't do this unless God's behind it. You yourselves bear me witness that said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. Now, who did he say that to? Well, in chapter 2, he said that to the Jews, the council, the Pharisees, um, representatives that came out and said, who are you and what are you doing this for? Who gave you the authority for this? So he's talking to the Jews. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He said, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He's the guy. Now, we don't understand this because of what we know of as weddings in the Western world. Weddings in the Western world is all about the bride. It's all about her dress. It's all about her coming down the aisle. Everybody else is in place before the bride comes down the aisle. And everybody looks and says, oh, isn't she so pretty and stuff like that. That's not the way weddings are in the East. In the East, it's all about the bridegroom. The bride is in position when the bridegroom comes walking down the aisle. Now, the reason that goes, at least in ancient times, the reason that's the case is because men were the favored ones and women were more like property. So you wouldn't make the the wedding about the bride. The wedding is about the bridegroom. And that's what he's talking about. He said, Jesus is the guy. He's what this party is all about. I'm just his friend, and I'm glad to see all the good things that he's doing. Now, I see a lot of John's attitude, John the Apostle's attitude toward John the Baptist. 
He must have loved John the Baptist. Because he goes on and says, uh, verse 30, he shows John the Baptist's attitude toward Jesus and the success that he's having in his ministry. He said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all, and he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth, but he that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no man receives his testimony. That's the same thing Jesus said to Nicodemus. And no man receives his testimony. He that has received this testimony, his testimony, has set to his seal that God is true. Now, um, let me say one thing about John the Baptist. I think John the Baptist is a great example for us. Because remember, we've already uh, talked about, I guess it was last week, how that John the Baptist's ministry and the whole reason he baptized was so that he would know who the Spirit of God came upon and stayed. He said that everything about his ministry and calling people to repentance was so that, but was because of God telling him, revealing to him, that there would come a point in time where there was somebody that he would baptize, which is the reason he's baptizing everybody he can. There's somebody that you baptize that the Holy Ghost is going to come down from heaven and descend upon him and remain there. And that's how you'll know who the Messiah is. And that's where John began to testify. That's where John began to say, this is the guy. I saw heaven opened. I saw the Holy Ghost come down upon him. He came down. He stayed upon him. This is the guy. And a lot of John's followers began to follow Jesus from that point instead. But John keeps doing the same thing that he was doing. As long as he's here, he stays faithful. That could have been the point where he gave up and said, well, okay, my job's done. I'm going to retire now. I'm finally going to eat something beside locusts and wild honey. So all kinds of things he could have done, but he stays faithful until the point where he's thrown in prison and then beheaded. He continues to speak of Jesus in verse 34. He says, For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Notice what John understands about Jesus just because he saw the Holy Ghost come upon him and stay. The Holy Ghost coming upon him and remaining on him means that what he says he's saying from God, what he does he's doing because God gives him the ability to do it. He gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things unto his hand. John knows who Jesus is. He knows he's the Son of God. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's still only two positions, folks. There'll never be any more than two positions. There's perishing and there's eternal life. There is no middle ground. These are the things that John seems to be... um, Impressed by the Holy Ghost to emphasize in the early part of John's, in the early part of Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of things he could have talked about, a lot of things he could have started with, but he starts about this, he talks about the same thing chapter after chapter after chapter, and that is the way that God reached people. The way that Jesus reached people's hearts, touched people's hearts, and it's a different way in almost every situation. With some it was miracles, other things it was things that he spoke secrets to their hearts. You're going to see different things that take place where other, other different types of, of uh, signs, workings of the Holy Ghost were employed. But it's all about reaching people. It's all about people coming to accept the eternal life that Jesus came to bring. John knows at age 90-something that that's what counts the most in life. And that's what he points out as Jesus being the Son of God because that was his whole purpose for being here on the earth. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came to to save the world from their sins. And this is how he did it.
We think of Jesus in the crowds. John talks more about Jesus one-on-one than he does anything else. That's what John knew. Now, folks, John's been, well, let me ask it this way. What would you do if you were John? You've got 60, about 60 years since the time Jesus was raised from the dead. You've received the Holy Ghost and been filled with the Holy Ghost and been walking with God with the Holy Ghost on the inside of you for 60 years. Do you think there would be a day go by that you wouldn't be considering the things that Jesus did and said? Part of the work of the Holy Ghost is to remind us, bring to our remembrance all things that Jesus said. What would that be like if you walked with Jesus for three years? I mean, for us, it's reminding us of what the Bible says as we feed on the Word and, and, and commit it to our hearts and, and so forth. But for these guys, these were the, 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 the experiences that they had, the meetings that they had, the dinners that they had with Jesus, the walks down the road where it was just them. Imagine the things that the Holy Ghost is going to bring to their remembrance. He's been committing and he's been considering these things and committing himself to these things for 60 years. And it's almost like the Holy Ghost handpicks different things for John to say. John finishes up saying, if everything Jesus said or did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. That means he had to pick and choose what he told us about. And these are the things that he found most important by the direction of the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand something. Eternal life may mean more to God than it does to you. Because it means that there is a specific connection that God makes with you. There's no way that he cares more about these guys who were not yet saved than he cares about you who have given your heart to him. He knows your heart. He knows the secrets of your heart. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what you care about that you shouldn't care about. He knows what you care about that you should. If there's anything you get out of the Gospel of John, get an open heart. Because that's everything about John. John is going to talk about Jesus in such a way that Jesus knew the good, the bad, and the ugly about everybody that he came in contact with. And he reached people, and he influenced them, and he drew out that which was good. He challenged people just like he'll challenge you. That's where a lot of people run. God will challenge them, and they'll take off and say, well, I don't want any part of that. But he challenges you for the purpose of bringing out that which is good so that you can go further and further in him. Remember, John is telling us about experiences that he lived that brought him into a place where they couldn't kill him. They tried again and again and again. John never says we had something special. He said it's all about who Jesus is, and this is who he is for you too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so real to us. Thank you for being so kind. Thank you, Lord, that you know our innermost thoughts and the secrets of our hearts. And you always encourage us. You never condemn us because you didn't come to bring condemnation. You do challenge us to go further in you and to commit ourselves wholly under your word and under your plan for our lives. But it's always a sweet encouragement. It's always even as you spoke to Peter when he asked to come out on the water. You said, come. Thank you, Lord, for leading us out into your perfect will for our lives. Thank you for leading us into the miraculous. Thank you for leading us into doing the works of Jesus. 
so that the unbelievers may know that you truly are the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.